All right. Well, good morning, church. There's no intro video, so usually that's our cue to end our uh, fellowship time. Um, that is because we, have, we are in a series, a three-part series, uh, on Advent. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Saju Matthew, and I am one of the uh, members of the Transit Church. And uh, we started the uh, Advent uh, series last week when Nick preached, um, and our topic is Our Generous God. And that's what we want to look at over the course of, of three Sundays of our generous God. And so in this Advent season, um, we're going to be looking at different passages that, that show us the nature of God and his generosity towards us. As we think about Advent, I heard somebody the other day give a very helpful definition of how to define Advent. And she simply said, Advent means almost. I really like that, you know, Advent means almost, right? And that's where we are, that's where we find ourselves. It's almost Christmas time, right? It's almost the birth of Jesus Christ. It's almost the arrival of the Savior of the world into this world. So we're in this almost stage, and in these weeks before Christmas, that's the posture that we have is of waiting and expecting and so we're going to look at passages that help us to draw closer and to wait and, and with greater excitement and greater joy and appreciation for who our God is. Now last week what Nick did was he walked us through, the, through how the gospel should orient the church when it comes to financial generosity. You know, how, how do we think about money? How do we think about wealth? Where is the church in that? Where should the church be with that? And how do we learn to trust God with the possessions and the resources that God has given to us? And how do we draw our hearts to learning to say that we can trust his generosity in that? Well, today we're going to continue on that journey, but we're going to reflect on the birth narrative of Jesus. And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to look at the birth story, but we're going to get to that a little bit later. I would say it's a relatively long intro, so hold, hold on for that a little bit. But let me pick up in some ways where Nick left off last week. Um, and I want to look at this verse in Matthew 6, 24, which talks about the concept of money. It says here, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despite, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, right? So this passage talks to us about the fact that money can become our masters, and the reality is that human being cannot have two masters. So let me start with this question and ask you, what is a master? Let's think about that and process it in your head. But what is a master? Maybe the most straightforward definition of a master is an owner. So when, if that's what master means, well, what is that verse in Matthew 6, 24 telling us? Well, it means that either money owns you or God owns you. But whichever the case, the point beyond that is this. We can be owned. We can be owned. And I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about that concept of what it means to be owned. Now, being owned generally doesn't sit too well with us, right? It, it doesn't sound right. It just, it just feels wrong in many ways. 
There was an English philosopher in the 1600s, a philosopher and political thinker named John Locke, and he had made this argument that self-ownership, self-ownership is an incontestable human right. That is the only way a human should be. Let me read this quote to you from John Locke where where he expanded on that. He said, though the earth and all inferior creatures be common to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to buy himself, but to, to any right to but himself, right? This no one has any right to but himself. Now, I want us to spend a, a little bit of time looking at some of these examples where we struggle with the concept of, of ownership and, and, and how that has invaded the world in, in some things that are very material even today, from the history of time to even today. First thing I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about is this whole concept of slavery. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's think about that a little bit. I mean, slavery has existed really since the beginning of time, right? You see that all throughout history. One of the things you may or may not have noticed when you read the story of Abraham and Sarai is that Sarai had a slave. Her name was Hagar, right? So the concept of people being owned was something that existed long ago. Ancient Israel was in captivity was in slavery to Egypt for 430 years. 430 years where they were abused, where they were made to work, backbreaking work, where they didn't experience freedom. They didn't have the right to leave. So this whole cruel practice where the powerful can own or control the powerless is a part of human history, is something that exists, and it's a part of America's history, right? The American history of slavery is something that still vibrates. The, the vibrations of it are still felt today, and the conversations and the, and, the, and the wrestling with that has still not ended. Because it's this concept of a human being was owning another human being. That whole idea, and I want to make this point, it just doesn't sit with us well that somebody can dictate or control somebody else. You see, there's something in us that's very similar to what John Locke said. Self-ownership is the incontestable part of human rights. And if you know some of the early struggles with that, there was this whole question of, in, in the early formation of America, is a slave a person or a property? Is it a person or a property, right? And that's what led to huge debates in 1787 when they were trying to draft the Constitution and trying to figure out, figure out that concept. And one of the things that that wrestled with was that in the, there were slaveholding states and free states, and the slaveholding states also wanted to count the slave person, not just as a property, but also a person. Why? Because then you have more representation in government, more of that. And the free states fought that and were, were wrestling with us. says, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't continue to practice slavery and call a a person your property, but when it comes time for voting, you have the right to count their votes as a a single vote. And so something came up called the three-fifths compromise, right? 
the Three-Fifth Compromise. And if you want to read about it, read Frederick Douglass's writings on it. It is, it is exquisite. He had traveled to, to uh, Scotland, I believe, and he writes about how this was a wrestling of, of, the, of, of America in those early years. But I, but I say this as one example of this concept of, wow, it blows our mind. Oh, my gosh. Like the idea of somebody owning another person is just uncomfortable. All right. If that's not uncomfortable, let me give you another uncomfortable example. <laughs> Abortion. Right? Abortion. What is, the, what is the, 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 the chant cry behind abortion? My body. My choice. Right? It's my body, my choice. How dare you have any ownership or say over my body? That's between me and maybe my doctor. You see, that concept of independence, autonomy, right? Self-determination, being a, a person who cannot be controlled or owned, at least in our physical being, is something that's so, so loud, so vivid. And, and it's actually a, an issue that's back on the table. I don't know if you're following this, but it's a case now before the Supreme Court coming out of, I believe, a, a lower court case in Mississippi where Roe versus Wade will, will be put on the table and on arguments have started. But if you're following the conversation and the stirring around it across the country is also there. In some ways, regardless of the way the courts may rule, there is a sense that if you tell me what I can't and can't do with my body, you're, you're encroaching beyond you have any right to come. That is my decision. That is my, that is my personhood. See, so I just want to establish how strong it is, this concept of you don't own me, I own myself. Even today in our pandemic situation, right? I mean, what's the big debate that's going on when it comes to vaccines? Should it be mandated? Should it not? But underneath that, what is the issue? Who tells me what I should, could, or have to put into my body. You're going to mandate what I have to take? And I'm not taking a position on any of these things, but I just want us to show that this is a constant reality even today in many, many areas, right? Because there's something very fundamental about being a person and saying that therefore you have a boundary and you can't cross it. Right? That's what assault is. That's what assault and battery are. Right? You can't touch me in any way. That is violating into spaces that you are not allowed. There's a poem written in the 1800s. Invictus is the name of the poem, and you may know it. And I won't, I won't read it, but you, you might be familiar with the final two lines of it. It's all about, like, like and it's, it's actually a really, a really beautiful poem about the fact that how the human spirit cannot be conquered no matter what adversity, no matter what a person goes through, that my head will not be bowed, I will not be conquered. But the last two lines of the poem is very telling. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, right? And we look at that as yes, yes, right? Because there's something powerful about it. There's something almost natural in, in many ways about this. So, my point is, human beings have a disposition towards self-possession. The idea of belonging to someone else, even God, even God, actually looks like a threat 
not a hope, right? It's not something that, that resonates in a positive way with us, even if it is God involved in it. So, so let's take a look at a little bit of what the Bible has to say. And the Bible does have something to say, but I thought maybe a few verses from Psalms might be helpful. So let's look at Psalms 100, verse 3, because God talks about this. He says this, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He that made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Right? In this, in this text, it says it, look, know that the Lord is God. That's God's position. The Lord's position is God, and He made us. We belong to Him. We're His people. An establishment of ownership and authority over us. Another verse in Psalms 24 says it this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. But the earth, everything, is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all that dwell in it. Very clearly establishing, no, 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 no. God is the owner of everything that he has made. All that is in the earth, the earth itself, and all that's in it. One more, one more from Psalms 89. If we're not convinced, here's what it says. Verses 11 and 12. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. You have founded them. So there's this really interesting wrestling that is happening and that is about to happen between self-ownership and God's ownership because the Bible is very clear. God owns it all. I like this quote from Abraham Kuyper who said it this way. He said, there is not a single inch on the whole terrain of our human existence on which Christ does not exclaim, mine, right? Mine, right? I mean, that's, that's, that, that's as plainly said as possible. So, so here's where we find ourselves. Because, because we think of ourselves as the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, it is difficult to embrace God's ownership as good news, right? It really does encroach in some ways. And we'll continue to walk down this. Let's look at it from another, another vantage point. Okay, not ownership, but I want to talk about it from the concept of dependency. And I want to say this. Human beings are dependent creatures, right? Human beings are dependent creatures. What I mean is we are designed to need a host because we cannot exist on our own. We're not autonomous. Again, in the way we naturally, normally, everyday operate, that doesn't seem to be a, a, a way in which we think or operate, right? We, we feel very free, very independent, very much capable or able or should be able to make our own decisions, to make our own choices. But if we examine Scripture carefully, we will come to this interesting understanding that human beings are not independent, they're dependent creatures. And that's why it makes what happened with Adam and Eve in that story so compelling. You see, in many ways, what, what Adam and Eve did was they unplugged themselves from their host and ventured out independently. They were attached to this being 
who would walk with them in the cool of the evening, who would speak to them, who gave them instructions on what their identity was, what their role was, what their names were, right, and what is expected of them. And they made the conscious decision to unplug, to become independent from the thing that they were supposed to be dependent on. And how do we know this? Because of what they ate. What did they eat? They, eat, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because now they are in a place to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. I got this. I can figure this out. I want to have that understanding. I want to have that autonomy. I don't want to live in this dependent state. I don't want to be kept in that kind of a condition. Why can't I have what I want and evaluate these things on my own and make the decision? You see, before then, the whole sense of what is good, what is beautiful, what is wrong, came not from them thinking, figuring it out, but from a God who held that, that place, that responsibility. Now, in, 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 in the Gospel of John, you know, Jesus has it this way, right? Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in him, if we remain in him, we produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus uses this analogy of, of a vine and a branch, which, which, is, which is quite easy for us to understand. I mean, if you cut off a branch from the plant that it's attached to, we know it is going to die, right? Even if you have beautiful flowers that you get and you bring and you put it in a vase and you set it up in your house somewhere, it's only a matter of time before it starts to wither and wilt, right? It can sustain for a little while, right? And we find ways to give water and, 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 and try to keep it going. But we know what's going to happen is at some point in a week or so or, or, or shorter or longer, you're going to have dead flowers, right, sitting on your countertops, sitting in those vases, because it is not attached to the source on which it is support dependent, the life-giving source that it is designed to be. And that's why Jesus uses this really basic analogy. He says, abide in me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, apart from me, you'll be not as successful as you could be with me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, what happened with Adam and Eve was when they unplugged themselves from their creator, from the thing that there was their life source that they were supposed to be dependent on, death entered this world. And gradually you see the catastrophic result, the evil and death entering this world. And it is unbelievable the heights, the level of evil that human beings are capable of is just unbelievable, isn't it? It's hard to look at history without wrapping our hearts around, oh my gosh, can we be that cruel, that heinous to one another? Is there no sense of no, that is wrong, that is evil, that is too much? No, that we, we can cross a line and another line and another line. There is simply no limit because we're not attached to the source that told us and led us in the knowledge of good and evil. Now we are ordering the world in our own image. 
And so sin came into the world like a cancer. Like we just, just read uh, for the testimony this morning, right, heard this morning, of the healing of cancer. But in many ways, that, that's an that's a, that's a apt way of describing sin because it mutates, right? It goes everywhere. And it, it, it obliterates everything that is good and healthy. And it is this constant struggle. I mean, that was hard to hear. 78 radiation treatments, right? And yet the cancer was persevering for this individual. Praise God. Praise God for the healing. But that is the way sin is. It doesn't stop. It attacks, it attacks, it attacks. And it tears apart, tears apart relationships, people, community, even our own selves from us. Such is the result of our desire, desire for independence from God. The world is withering and dying, just like a branch that is cut off from the vine. I don't know if you guys are, uh, watch zombie movies or know anything about zombie movies, but I actually think it is a really apt description of the way we are as human beings. Like, meaning, a zombie is walking around, moving about, and focused on certain things it wants to do, but it's not alive, right? We call it the living dead. The living dead. And that is in many ways, I think, what, what a human being is. It's just that when we look, I guess when one zombie looks at another zombie, he says, man, you look like a mess. What the heck is, that is a shame, right? They don't see that because they're like, we're after the same thing, trying to eat somebody that we can, right? <laughs> So when we sit here and look at each other, we're like, you look fine to me, you look fine to me, you look great, oh, that's fine. But from God's perspective, he sees these living, dead beings walking around the earth without purpose, without a sense of life, without a sense of the beauty of what they are created to be. He sees the cancer that has invaded us when we ourselves can't see it. When we relate to one another, we miss it. And God understands, God understands the depth of damage that sin has done. I will say, though, that deep down, I think we do probably sense that we are owned. And therefore, I think we rage against it. Right? We, we do. I mean, take a little baby, a little kid, right? I mean, the moment they learn to do something, and you go to help them, go, no, I got it, I want to do it myself, mine, mine, me, me. How many times in, in raising or, 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 or being with little kids have you seen where you did something to help them, and they had in their mind they wanted to do it themselves, and then they started crying like crazy. Why? Because they wanted to do it. They are raging against the fact that you're trying to take any control over me. The sad thing is that in the process of raging against God's ownership of us, we end up serving degrading masters rather than our loving Lord. All that belongs to him, sadly, we want to steal for ourselves, right? That is the state of this world. The state of this world is upside down, something that belongs to God, God owns. We now try to control and take for ourselves. So if the earth is the Lord's, let's ask, let me ask this question, how does God regain his stolen possessions? the world, and all that is in it. How does God regain it? Well, let's take a look at this parable from Matthew 21. Jesus tells a story to help us maybe draw closer and understand. 
So in Matthew 21, Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You see, Jesus uses this parable to describe the history that had been going on for thousands of years. God had been trying to make a relationship, a community with his nation that he had selected, right? His oracle through which he would be made known to the world, the people of Israel. But again and again, every prophet, everyone that came was beaten and killed. Their words, their truths, their teachings were rejected. And over and over again, God gives them a chance to reattach themselves back to him. But they refuse. Remember in the early days, you know, Israel was known in this way, God is their king, right? God is the king of Israel. But they clamored and they complained, said, no, 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 we want to be like other nations. We want to have a king, a person. And they asked that they have a king just like other nations, right? What Israel continued to do was continue to reject this, this master, this owner of the vineyard who had, who had given them all that they had. And so the story tells us that he finally decides after failure, after failure, after failure, the owner is going to send his very own son. His very own son. And that's what brings us to the Christmas story this morning. What is that going to look like? Can you imagine the thoughts and the, and the thinking that the people have had for, for thousands of years of waiting? Messiah will come. The Messiah will come. It was foretold. It was anticipated. It was taught about. It was, it was studied. And people tried to examine all different clues and ways to understand the coming of the Messiah, the one who will set Israel free. Right? But it blew everybody's mind away because it looked nothing like anyone had anticipated or planned. The coming of Jesus his birth, his arrival on earth. There is not a single uh, church scholar or, or priest or anyone that could have written or anticipated or guessed that. It was not anything like it was. I mean, you would think, that is what I own, all of that, and these people have stolen it. They have taken it for themselves. They've abused it. They've destroyed it. And now I'm going to finally send a Messiah. It's going to be God's own son. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, we're all sort of seeing the plot line if it's a movie. Oh, okay, this is where the hero comes in, right? What's it going to be like? What, guns blazing, ready to take everything down and make straight the things that have been taken from him? And we find a very different story. So I'd like to read through this story with you in Matthew chapter 1 starting in verse 18. And let's just think about 
the ridiculousness of it, the unpredictability of it, the unorthodoxy of it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew tells it, and we're just looking at some portions of it. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's go to the next But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Even though there are so many clues about that in the Old Testament, that there will be a virgin who will conceive, nobody thought it was going to be a hardly a 15-year-old, maybe a little girl, right? Who were going to think, that's the plot line? or that it would come from this incredibly poor family, from a, from a place in Israel that people laugh at and mock at of how, how poor they are, how poor it is. As Jesus grew up, you know, is that anything good come from Nazareth, where he grew up, shows the, shows the absolute nobodiness of these people. Or Joseph. I mean, oh my gosh, this man who was supposed to get married and then finds out that, that Mary is pregnant, with, with, with a child, she says, from the Holy Spirit, and the whole thing. And, and now he's trying to figure out how to have a divorce and just end it, but, but to, not to embarrass her. And the whole thing is just becoming such a scandal, such an uncomfortable reality. And when it comes time for Jesus' birth, not a house, I mean, I'm not saying a hospital or a palace, but not even a house, not even a room, but a manger, a stable, no actual physical bed of any kind to lay a newborn baby, to give birth in a, in a place where there's the smells and the sounds and, the, and everything else of just all kinds of animals in that, in that barn. And no one to come and help or support except a few shepherds who are also nobodies. I mean, they lived outside and, so, and they smelled and people didn't associate with them. They were also generally known to be untrustworthy and scoundrels. And they're the ones who show up at the birth scene. And they don't have any idea what's happening except that some angels appear to them and their minds were blown and so they run to where they are supposed to go and they see this sight and they can't figure it out. The most clueless, confusing, unbelievably ridiculous scene is a teenage girl with her newlywed husband, a bunch of shepherds, animals, sitting in a cold manger, and not one of them knows what's going on here. What's supposed to happen here? What are we supposed to do? How is this supposed to unfold? 
Somebody give me some, 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 some guidance, some help. I mean, you would think that the landlord, the owner, whose everything has been stolen would, would come with a lot more might, with a lot more thunder, right? With a lot more resolution that says, uh-uh, I'm going to let it be known that I'm here. I'm going to make my presence something that will not be forgotten, marked in history. There's no history books recording it. It was a time of Augustus Caesar, and nobody blinked. Nobody knew, nobody noticed, nobody cared. Why? Why? What is God doing? Why is he coming as such a nobody? Why is he coming with such um, a, a sense of anonymity? But it certainly blew everybody's minds away because that's not the way the story of the arrival of the Messiah is supposed to look like. If any one of us were given a chance to write a story, we would not come up with this, this plot line. You know? It, it, it truly blows us away. And in, in some ways, I think, when you want to stoop down to worship the God who has come down, but he is as far down as he can be because he's a baby in a manger, right? He always finds a way to get one level below us. One more level below us. One more level below us. Right? It is, it is just, just mind-blowing. And that's why this verse in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, that we can look at, it's just so powerful. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, purposeful, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, there is no way that anyone can feel left out. There's no way. Because every single humiliation, rejection, lowly status in life, Jesus experienced. Jesus walked. His birth story is, is, is just an initial glimpse of, oh, this is, not, this is not unfolding the way that any of us predicted. And maybe that's what makes it so beautiful. As we sit in this season of Christmas and as we celebrate and we come near to the story of Jesus' birth, it, it, it always has this, oh my gosh, that is so kind. That is so unbelievable. As we spend time in worship, I think it allows us to connect to the, to the incredible generosity and graciousness that God has. He doesn't come with a lot of, with, with a lightning bolt in his hand. He doesn't come with judgment. He is not shooting down on the clouds. There's not a boom from heaven, right? There isn't this, 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 this mass grand entrance. And that's, in many ways, we should, we should be walking into Christmas. Our Savior, the one who owns all of this stuff, the one whose everything was stolen from him, the one who is the source of life that would sustain us came down lower than any human being can. Now, there is, there is a particular problem, though. 
that we have to wrestle with, which is that generosity that Jesus is offering, that generosity only happens in the context of ownership. Because think about it. How do you access this gift that Jesus is offering, Jesus' birth? How does it mean anything to you? other than a beautiful, cute story that you might watch on TV, right? Only if we surrender first to his ownership. And when we do, that's why it blows our minds away. Otherwise, it means nothing. This incredible generosity that God is offering means absolutely nothing to this world that does not want him to be their owner that does not want to stay dependent on God. It might be a lovely story, it might be an interesting, but it's just like a book or any other story that, that could be written. It doesn't hold much more meaning than that, but for anyone who has accepted his ownership over us, it blows our minds away because we realize, this is for me. This is to reconnect me. This is to reattach me, but for that to be available to us, we have to first be in a posture of surrender and accepting the lordship of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, there isn't much more to the Christmas story than just a cute little story. See, unless we surrender our self-ownership, our status as God of our life, and reattach ourselves to the host, to the vine, there is no good news. But if we do, what does Jesus say? But if we do, Jesus says, he will make his home with us. He will send us his spirit as a deposit of the fullness to come to say, there's so much more. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit, but I want you to know, guys, there is way more. But none of that present, none of that gift, none of that generosity actually has much value if we can in the first place says, yes, Lord, I want to belong to you. I want you to be the one who has master status, owner over us. Because what that Matthew passage says is, look, one way or the other, because we're dependent beings, we're going to make something our master. Right? Either it's a cruel master that will rip us apart and leave us emptier and emptier and more, more hooked, more addicted, more lost, or a generous, loving God that will make us the fullness of who we are supposed to be. So I'll, I'll close with just one last point, but if, if, the, if the worship team wants to come up, we can do that. Jesus' entire life, in many ways as I think about it, was actually a demonstration of how to fully and exclusively live on the generosity of the Father. Right? When we talk about generosity, I, it's, how, do you, how, do you, how does that look like in action? How do I live a life where I accept God's generosity? Well, that's Jesus' story. He accepted where the Father said he should be born. Right? He did what the Father asked. He went where the Father told him to go. He lived off of what the father provi his Father provided. He obeyed what his Father commanded. He invited his disciples and followers, those that the Father drew near to him. 
You see, Jesus' life on this earth showed us, hey, I'm going to show you what it's like to live simply on the generosity of my Father. His guidance, his direction, his offerings will be more than enough for me. When we are called to make God our master, Jesus says, look, let me show you what it's like to fully accept God as my master, my Lord. In fact, there are times when Jesus says, no man knows this, no man knows the hour, no man knows that, not even the Son of God. Why? Because look, I'll live in trust. I'll live in relationship. What the Father gives, that will be more than enough. So if you want to know what surrender looks like, what trust looks like, then let the generosity of the Father be your sufficiency. Let that be something that is more than enough. I hope as this Christmas season passes that you will reflect on the Christmas story and it will, it will warm your heart. It will move you to tears. It would humble you to know that this God who is all-powerful and who has everything and who had everything stolen from him came in the most humblest of forms and was willing to take on the depth of poverty so that you and I can be rich. As a way for us to just enter into that and remember that and solidify that in this moment as an act of something we can do together, let's take communion together, church. If you don't have communion elements, they are over there on the table, so, so go and grab it. But if you do have it, pull it out. And I want us to just look at this, this passage um, from Philippians as before we take the elements. Here's what it says here, starting in 6. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what this communion that we do together is all about, right? It is the remembrance that God, though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, emptied himself for us, so that we could have life, even to the point of death, death on the cross. So as we sit here today, maybe still struggling with, oh, I don't know if I want somebody to own and control that much of me and that kind of stuff, let's remember that we have a very benevolent owner, a benevolent father who loves us, who gave everything for us. And let's take the communion elements. So if you will open up the wafer, if I can do it. <laughs> and as you hold this, as you meditate on this, yeah, his entire body, all that he had physically, beaten, bloodied, bruised, killed for us, for you. Let's do this in remembrance of that. As a spear struck Jesus' side, his very blood flowed out 
But more than that, it was a reminder to us that it is for us that blood that cleanses us and makes us new. So as we take this element, let's remember we are new in him. We are washed. We are clean. We belong returning back to our Father. So let's take this in remembrance of that. I'll read the rest of the Philippians passage and then we will move to worship. So verse 9 on, it says here, Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. <clears throat> and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as you wait this Christmas season, it's almost here. We know it's here because Jesus came 2,000 years ago. But we remember that symbolically. It's almost here. It's the Advent season. So I hope you rejoice. Church, I tell you, there is no greater time for Christians, the church, to rejoice than Christmas. It is the most beautiful, wonderful, amazing gift that God came down for us. There's no reason for us to hesitate in the joy, the celebration. God came down for us. The waiting was over. The thousands of years of anticipation was over. Jesus is God here to save us from sin. And we are free. We are healed. We are restored. We are reattached, replugged back in to the one whom we were always supposed to be dependent on anyway. Praise God. All right, let's worship together, church. <clears throat>